we should own a lot less code than we do today. There's an awful lot of freedom with code. There's white space you fill with code. You can always do crappy stuff with really awesome things. Speak for yourself. This is AWS Insiders, an original podcast by CloudFix about the services, patterns, and future of cloud computing at AWS. CloudFix is a tool that finds and implements 100% safe AWS recommended cost savings. That's fixes, not just analytics. I'm Hillary Doyle, as always, joined by Rahul Subramaniam. Rahul, how the heck are you? Doing really well, Hillary. How are you? I am also well, thanks. Look at us just starting <laughs> out the day with a bang. I know. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, at the edge of your seats, in this episode, are old school programming languages kind of dead? Should we be focusing instead on cloud APIs? To code or not to code? That is the, well, it's the gist of the question. <laughs> but before we start, I am going to ask you to define some terms for us, Rahul. Let's start with the most popular programming languages and what exactly we mean by cloud APIs. In the context of today's conversation, when we talk about programming languages, we are basically talking about Java, Python, C-sharp, Go, and such languages. My contention is not really that these languages are dead, but that the code that we write has a very short half-life and deserves far less importance than we give it today. Got it. And when we talk about API, we are specifically talking about cloud APIs that encapsulate functionality without consumers needing to worry about any of the infrastructure associated with it. So basically commoditized solutions. Commoditized solutions. There's the rub. Okay, code versus cloud APIs explained, albeit a little bit briefly. We will go deeper with guest and CTO for hire, Alex Hudson. He's here to defend the honor and longevity of programming languages. We also have our usuals, the hot takes, our use case, tips and tricks. Plus, we've got a visit from Steve Brain. He'll also show up with his arms and his legs. He's one of our in-house insiders. But first, let's start with your AWS headlines. Rahul, AWS has created new support for SQL Server in RDS Proxy, which would make it faster to connect and scale with SQL Server databases. Is this a surprising development? The SQL Server edition is actually really, really exciting. Oh, go on. Now, RDS Proxy has been kind of upping the efficiency of serverless code for quite a while with support for MySQL and Postgres. Mm -hmm. The problem is that since serverless code is short-lived, operations like creating database connections and connection pools take an awful lot of time in comparison with the actual operations. Mm. So RDS Proxy takes away all of those operations and manages them virtually for all the serverless executions like Lambdas. Cool. Now, if only AWS could build an Oracle equivalent support, that would be so awesome. Okay, we have two bits of related news. Microsoft has partnered with Kindrel to ease data migration from mainframe to cloud, and Google Cloud has joined forces with HCL Technologies to do something similar. Rahul, AWS's two main competitors are helping customers migrate. Is this something AWS should concern itself with ASAP? I don't think so. But I mean, whatever computation mainframes are doing could probably be done better and faster with cloud-native APIs. Of I mean, the mainframe game is heating up 
for all three providers. I mean, even though AWS has its own mainframe modernization service, Mm -hmm. the problem of complex refactoring and validation continues to remain across all three cloud service providers. I mean, I think these customers would be much better off if they went back to the core value proposition of the solutions that they're running on these mainframes Mm. and just rebuilt that without trying to get feature parity. I think they'd be much better off if they just did that. Okay, so you're saying that migration can and should be achieved with a lighter touch and what these CSPs are offering now is too heavy-handed? I think the way they're trying to migrate is flawed and they should rethink what migration to the cloud really means. Talk to this guy. Rahul, we'll get to the emergence of cloud APIs and their impact on programming in a minute. But first, I'd like to take a step back to understand the philosophy around code and how that's evolved. A byproduct of the early days of computing was a culture of really trying to write code that everyone hoped would last the rest of time. Code is seen as art. And there is this expectation that if done right, it never has to be rewritten again or last at least 10 years. But then cloud APIs came along and more or less took this focus on code away. Absolutely. I mean, you suddenly have these black box services that are fully managed, more efficient and cheaper. And best of all, we didn't have to build any of these ourselves. Do you have stories that you can share from your own work? Yeah. So here's an example of how we leveraged an awesome pattern around business intelligence and visualization. I mean, we picked a set of AWS services that allowed us to replace hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Now, over the years, I have seen about 50 different ways in which BI solutions have been implemented. But then AWS built QuickSight and we started deleting all the BI code across our product suite and built a standard pattern which used S3 or Redshift as the data store. And then we started using Athena and QuickSight to embed a very standard but efficient and scalable business intelligence solution into every one of our products. And we've never had to worry about scaling the solution. AWS just takes care of that for us. Great. So rather than focusing on code, now you're focused on patterns. Nerd alert, Hillary. <laughs> hey! All right, well, let's lift ourselves out of the nerd weeds for a moment to talk about Art and fashion, please. Hillary, you know me. The art in my home is made of Lego, and I have zero fashion sense. That's harsh. But I do geek out on technology behind a lot of the modern-day fashion and design. No problem. We will start at square one. (laughs) You've probably heard of the fashion magazine Vogue. I'm going to tell you about Photo Vogue. It's connected to Vogue Italia, and what you should basically take from this is, it's fancy. It is a curated ecosystem of over 130,000 photographers with a collection of over 400,000 photos, each of which can be as large as 50 megs. Rahul, you may know nothing about fashion, but you do know a little something about the challenges that PhotoVogue faced in 2017. Yes. So PhotoVogue suddenly got very popular and photographers kept uploading images, which put a big strain on the platform. But also the latency and scalability were a problem for the editorial team that needed to process and catalog all of these images that were being uploaded. So in one season, the existing IT infrastructure basically became very unfashionable. Nicely done. You're catching up. That's good. (laughs) To get back on track quickly, PhotoVogue decided to step away 
from their old school on-prem setup, but they wanted to do it in just three months. And that is what we call fast fashion. (laughs) We'll go deeper into that in just a bit. (laughs) It's a good example of problem solving with the cloud APIs. But first, we have an exciting conversation with Alex Hudson. Yes, we do. Alex Hudson calls himself an advisory CTO to a portfolio of startup and scale-up companies. Many of them sit in the healthcare sector, so you may owe your health in part to Alex Hudson. A lot of the businesses he works with have completed their digital transformations, and so he likes to say he's sort of leading them into the post-digital era. What does that even mean? (laughs) I don't know, but we will find out. Alex Hudson, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Alex, you're a Python developer by trade and a pro programmer. You've said that no code as an alternative to most mainstream development is a pipe dream. Why do you think so? Gosh, uh, where to start? (laughs) I think there are some use cases actually where it does shine. There are certain things you can do where it's great. The specific problem I think we face is this issue of complexity. When you're building bigger things, more moving parts, they become more and more sophisticated over time. How do you do that in that kind of no-code environment? And we don't seem to have a good answer for that, in my experience. Rahul, could you give us just an understanding of how relevant code is to your day-to-day work? We write code to be able to let computers know what we want it to do. But the reality of the modern-day setup is that Almost 90% of the kind of code that we used to write over the last decade or more is now commodity and is available as commodity services. And my contention really is that we should own a lot less code than we do today. Alex, what would you say to that? As developers, we don't necessarily like using services depending on other people. And a lot of that is actually about that feeling of being able to have control, particularly over complex computer systems, If something goes wrong, you want to feel like you know what's gone wrong. You know you have access to all the things underneath. And we're not good at kind of giving that up. Doesn't that effectively break all the best practices that we talk about, about modular design or modular architecture? Because you should have very clean abstraction and seams so that you have a standard interface that you can rely on in terms of what service it provides. And you shouldn't really have to deal with anything that's behind the scenes. I wouldn't want to understand how everything works, but also architecture is going to change over time. And some of the things that influence my systems are going to change over time. I'm not going to be able to make decisions necessarily up front that are the right decisions for the next five years. I'm going to have to change things around. I'm going to have to refactor how a system works. But if you really look at Cloud API, they've actually standardized and actually hardened a lot of these aspects, whether it is the way you build your architecture to scale, whether it is for security, whether it is for elasticity, like all of those aspects are now baked in to some amazing standards that you can actually follow and deliver outcomes. I think there are some cloud APIs out there that are great. And I'd think about things like voice recognition, you know, put in some audio, get some text back. Yeah. But then there are other domains. So for example, in medicine, we want to use AI to diagnose conditions. And that tends to be less about how you run the AI and more the data that you have available, the, the insight and the labeling and, and all of that. And you can't really do that very easily against the cloud API. And even if you're able to, you then run into a regulatory problem that it's somebody else's software running all of this and, and you can't look far enough down the stack to be clear about how it works. 
when we're writing a new system that's going to do something very novel, we want to write as little code as possible to try and get at the novelty and test it out and work with customers with it. But over time, that's going to mature and we're going to want to be a lot more specific about how it works and we're probably going to want to sort of know a lot more about it. So that begs the question of how much speciality do you really need? Most novel solutions in my experience have maybe 10% of the entire solution, which is truly novel, and everything else that goes into that solution is a commodity component that you can add to your overall solution. Yeah, I think particularly in these sort of low-code environments, and to some extent in low-code and to some extent when we're talking about APIs, there is a boundary to the thing that you're using. I'll give you a really simple example. I had an organization I was working in that had used Salesforce and this a whole bunch of different systems within Salesforce for doing, you know, coding without code. And in one of these systems, we'd written some help desk functionality. And one of the fields in the help desk ticket was the URL of the site that it was related to. And the person who developed it had chosen a string limited to 50 characters. And it was in a visual builder. And we obviously found there were things that we wanted to record that were longer than that. And in a code environment, doing a kind of find and replace across a whole bunch of different places and refactoring that is pretty easy. Let me tell you, in this Salesforce thing, we were going into one form and into another, into another, and this string that was 50 characters long was in every place. <laughs> it's like going into a garden and finding that you've got a whole series of weeds that you had to pull. And that's kind of the issue is that there's an awful lot of freedom with code, everything is malleable, everything is kind of changeable to a large extent. And it's just your ability to figure out what the change you want to make is and affect that change that restricts you. The platform itself is pretty unrestricted. But Rahul, are you using code to build workarounds in your own setups right now? It's just you and me here. Yes, we <laughs> No, we absolutely do. I mean, there are gaps in the set of APIs that are available today, and those are constantly evolving. So one of the things that I ask my developers to do is that every time they write code, I actually ask them to justify why in the pull request that they sent to me for review, I ask them to justify why that code that they just wrote is going to be really easy to delete. Because I believe that in the next year or two years or three years down the line, there's going to be a service out there that's going to fill in this gap. And I'm, I should be able to delete this existing code and replace it with whatever comes down the line. Finding the right tool for the right problem is the challenge that most developers kind of lack the skill for. And that's basically where I'd say we as an industry need to focus. Identifying standard patterns where you have this standard tooling for standard problems, that is the way forward if you want to really prevent people from doing all kinds of moronic stuff. I mean, this is this holds true for code as well as no-code solutions. And this for you is about living in the future, even though you admit that right now the future looks like a serious work in progress. Programming languages and the abstractions that we've been creating has been a work in progress since the late 50s. And that's not stopped. In fact, the pace of it has just accelerated. Yeah. And I don't see that stopping for the next two decades. So yeah, it's always going to be work in progress. But it makes me nervous when you say about an API landscape, a cloud API landscape, that that is a work in progress. Because if I'm making a decision about the future of my company and I'm deciding to go all in on cloud APIs and to really limit the number of developers I'm going to bring on, that feels extremely risky to me if I'm dealing with circumstances like Alex just described, where I'm effectively locked in. 
So here is one thing that I'm going to quote Werner Vogels. Oh, go on. That he says in every single reinvent talk that he does. At every opportunity. He says, APIs <laughs> are forever. Yeah. Which means that if you have an API that's been published, that API does not go away. You can create a new API that does things differently or better, but the API that you built is forever. And that's the underlying philosophy that Amazon builds its web services on. And I think that's the right way to do it. I see that they've gone out and covered an awful lot more breadth. I don't think they've been as successful building one API on top of another. If I look at what's out there right now, you know, even the sort of latest compute APIs and things, you've got lambdas and things like that. They've made the systems faster and they've made use of, you know, the RAM disk drives and things that you can get now and, and all of that good stuff and there is progress. But there's very little that you could say, oh, this is clearly a much higher abstraction than what we had back then. And it's a result of one team building on top of the work of another. And I think that's a bit of a failure because even now you have developers saying, hey, you know, all that Heroku stuff that I used to use 10, 15 years ago was easier and, you know, more straightforward for me. I got more done. And I think that's interesting to think about, you know, has that ability to turn all of your teams into APIs developed anything except it's allowed people to be swapped in and outside of Amazon Teams more easily? And I'm not sure, you know, technically it's helped very much. Rahul, are you seeing that with your teams? You're speaking to the king of AWS over here with Rahul. <laughs> I mean, he's in there every day. So are you seeing more of a, an easier turnover within your own teams? And what do you say in response to this notion that it isn't as clean as Alex would like to stack these APIs on top of one another? I would say it's definitely work in progress, but I disagree with the fact that it's been a failure in terms of building solutions on top of these set of APIs. I mean, there are two ways I look at it. One is Look at the number of organizations that have literally sprung up overnight and become multi-billion dollar empires because they were able to very quickly iterate, be on the AWS platform, very quickly iterate on their solutions and go to market very, very rapidly because they leverage these APIs. And you've heard me talk about this a lot. There are higher order services that AWS has been focused on over the last couple of years, which truly do use a lot of these underlying, you know, first generation of APIs that they created. So I actually don't see these as failures. So Rahul, how would you respond to Alex's concern that with no code, we abstract away the key details? I'm going to start with saying that I've never met a developer who's taken over an existing code base and said, oh, that previous code base was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can second that. Yeah. Question for both of you is how important are languages in this kind of coding? Rahul, do you care about coding languages? I care about whatever is simplest that gets the job done fastest. <laughs> okay. yeah. So that's my only criteria. I don't spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about the language that my developers use. As long as it is well abstracted and developers can get their functionality done very quickly and they have a standard interface that they expose, yeah, I don't care about the language. Alex, how important is language to you code-wise? It's a lot more important, yeah. If you're developing code, I think it is important to know more than one language. I think if you're stuck in a language, you're probably also stuck in a pattern of thinking. Mm -hmm. There are obviously some examples where it does make a difference. So, for example, if you're an AWS Lambda programmer, there are certain languages that start up a lot more slowly than other languages. And, you know, you may not want to go there. And then depending on the size of the runtime and things like that, that will impact your startup speed. There are still practical considerations like that that you always end up having to take account of. Thanks so much for being with us, Alex. This has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed this, sorry. It's been great speaking to both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Rahul, they say you should try to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And in your case, we all know that's not possible. But you can surround yourself with brains. In this case, Steve Brain. He's a colleague who has been itching to debate you. So we are welcoming him into the ring to expand on your conversation with Alex Hudson. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. Uh, You heard the chat. What are your first pieces of takeaway? Gosh, it was a really cordial chat. Alex seems like a great guy. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a little too nice. It was a debate, Steve. (laughs) When you mean cloud API... On one level, cloud API is I want to store a blob, you know, and how I store a blob doesn't really determine my architecture. So I think you mean more than that when you see cloud APIs. I'm talking about things like Kendra. I'm talking about things like AWS Connect. I'm talking about things like all the vertical AI services, whether it is Comprehend, Recognition, Forecasting, Personalize. I'm talking about services like that, which give you black box functionality with all the best practices baked in. Rahul, there's going to be a need for code likely to fill in the gaps. And so, Steve, what are your thoughts about the language that you should be using or the languages that you should be using to fill those gaps? Yeah, I think the real important thing to understand here is how big the gaps are. Yeah. Because I agree with Rahul. There's some point solutions with APIs. Twilio have done a wonderful job with telephony. I wouldn't build a telephony stack again. (laughs) Stripe have done a wonderful job with payments. But these are vertical, deep, specific APIs. But there's still a lot of white space in between. And to fill that white space, and this really goes to the conversation of Alex and Raul, I think I agree with Alex. The white space is broad and no code. You don't just like drag from the Kender API to the Stripe API to the recognition API and have an application. There's white space you fill with code and we still need engineers. Liberal arts majors, we've tried it over and over to have them be engineers and we keep going back. Hey, I take offense to the direction this conversation is going in, but I will allow you to proceed. No knock on liberal arts majors. I'm just saying I wouldn't want them riding my flight control system next time I get on the plane. Steve, just say it in iambic pentameter and everyone will be fine. So let me just ask you this, Steve, in a more specific manner. Does the programming language itself matter? I agree with you that there are gaps, but should it really matter given that At some point of time down the line, if these gaps are important enough, someone will come up with an API or a cloud service that you will want to replace what you wrote with. I mean, it matters for a couple of reasons. The first is that everything we think we throw away ends up having a 30-year lifetime. (laughs) So, And everything we think we're going to have will last for 30 years seems to get thrown away immediately. And that's partly because of the way startups work. Like, you've got to move fast. You've got to be scrappy to be successful. If you are very careful and stayed, you generally don't succeed. I'd like a summary, the takeaways from each of you. One takeaway, 30 seconds or less. Steve, you're up. Cloud APIs are great, but there's a huge amount of white space still between the APIs and programming languages and good quality code still matter a lot. And that isn't getting any easier. Rahul? I think I'm going to build on top of what Steve said and add that no one wants to own and manage all of this code. So even if you're writing code to fill these gaps, build them in a manner that are abstracted so that as soon as there is an API that's available that can fill a gap, you can switch over. Always building, even with his arguments. Thanks, you two. 
All right. One less brain in the room, but feels like less. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Rahul, this is your moment to drive home the cell. Cloud APIs over old school programming languages. Assuming you've convinced our listeners, what are the tips they need to help things go smoothly? So this week, my tips are going to be a little bit different. Mm. I mean, you kind of need to follow all of them for this to really make sense. So here goes. Oh my God, listen up. Yeah. <laughs> First, so stop spending inordinate amounts of time picking the programming language mm-hmm. or the tech stack and instead use the time to research cloud development patterns that you can just copy. Roger. Second, for any code that you write, make sure that the commit log answers the question about why that code is easy to delete. Hmm. Now, this practice causes a mind shift change and makes developers write well-abstracted code. Great. And then lastly, try to stay on top of announcements about new managed services and make use of every opportunity you get to delete the code that you own with one of these managed services. The three-word summary, never stop decluttering. You nailed that one, Hillary. (laughs) That's exactly it. like to get this photo vogue use case back on the runway please the only runway i'm familiar with are for planes hillary so you'll be fine finally (laughs) i have something to teach you because this use case rahul has been a welcome opportunity to revisit the fashion and art of 2017 you know just to get the vibe 2017 moonlight deservedly wins the oscar La La Land does not in one of the greatest mix-ups of Oscar history. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, see, you're right back with me. 2017, also Year of the Puffer Jacket, the Pussy March Hat, and the Ugly Sneaker, according to my browser history. Wow. Uh, no explanation needed, I'm sure. Fashion-wise, it was the year of yellow, although Pantone said it was actually the year of 15-0343, which is obviously green. And finally, Rahul, it was the year that Balenciaga put a $2,100 tote bag out into the world that looked almost indistinguishable from the 99-cent IKEA version. Oh my God, the memes. But in the midst of all of this hurly-burly, there was PhotoVote. Just trying to meet the growing demands of its photographers and editors Over 100,000 photographers already using the platform, which meant this old-school, on-prem business had a sudden and extremely pressing need to scale. AWS to the rescue, per usual. Yeah, sure, they brought speed, but what else did AWS resolve for Photo Vogue? Spotlights on you, Rahul! Hillary, I didn't understand most of what you had said in the beginning. Oh my God, I feel so seen right now. (laughs) Story of my life with you, go on. Yes, yes. But I get AWS, the 100,000 photographers and the scale. So Uh let me focus on that. Okay. Okay, (laughs) Okay. stick to your knitting. So AWS was a godsend for PhotoVogue's digital team. I mean, within three months, they were experiencing... 90% faster UX that scaled seamlessly Mm -hmm. and at the same time lowered their cost by 30%. Amazing. I mean, one, they wanted to store massive and ever-growing number of large images. Yeah. And I think it was, what, 400,000 images that we spoke about? Yes. Each being about 50 megs. Mm -hmm. And S3 was just the perfect solution for this kind of storage. It was very inexpensive to just switch over to S3. Second, 
they wanted to make it really easy for the photographers to upload these very large images without causing their infrastructure to bottleneck. Now, I mean, traditionally, you would write code and you would own the entire upload process mm -hmm. and dumping it into whatever data store. But with S3's pre-signed URLs, these uploads were just so simple because they did not need to use any of their infrastructure to have massive scale of uploads happening. So they could have a million photographers upload their photographs all in parallel, and they would actually not see any load on their own infrastructure. It was just an incredibly beautiful solution. And that was thanks to cloud APIs. Absolutely. Photo Vogue from dress code to no code, A-list to API. You love my jokes. That's it for us. For now, we will be back. You've been listening to AWS Insiders from CloudFix. I'm Hillary Doyle. And I'm Rahul Subramanian. CloudFix is an AWS cost optimization tool. You can learn more about them at cloudfix.com. Check out our show notes. And leave us a review. Five stars. Please follow us. We'll catch you later. <laughs> Bye.